Good evening, Doctology. My name is Leo, for those of you who don't know me. I'll be doing the scripture reading tonight from Psalm 33. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have these in the pews right in front of you. Um, Not the dark blue ones, but the paperback ones. Um, The dark blue ones are from Christ Church, so don't take those. Uh, You can also follow along on your phone. Again, the scripture reading is from Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is God's word. Thanks so much for that, Leo. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. And for those of you who are new joining us for the first time this evening, a warm welcome to you. Our church started just a few months before COVID. Uh, If we had known COVID was coming, I don't know if we would have planted then, but it's great to finally be reopening again and to see uh, more of your all's faces. And uh, we'll share a little bit more during the announcements at the end, but praise God, this is the final week that masks will be mandatory. So very much looking forward to that. So uh, grateful for what God's doing in our midst. So um, what we are doing this summer is we are working through the Psalms because what the Psalms help us do is not to be secondhand Christians where we read books about God or even just talk with people about God, but we get to know God firsthand. And one of the things that, are, that the Psalms are really helpful for, and the Psalm this evening is going to do this for us, is the Psalms help us feel emotions that we should feel, but often don't because of our temperament, right? And so say, say you're a person who tends to be a bit closed off toward the hurt and the brokenness of the world, it can be really helpful to read a psalm of lament or to read a psalm where someone's crying out as they're being oppressed to help you grieve about the things that God grieves about. And on the other hand, some of you have no problem being pessimistic or cynical. You emo kids, you know who you are. But like reading a psalm and going through a psalm of praise can help you feel joy-filled and confident even when you don't feel like it. And that's what the psalm this evening does. So 
what this, the psalmist, uh, we don't know who the author is, but we know he's in the midst of a hard time. So we see that there in verses 19, verse 19. So he's looking to, for deliverance from death to be kept alive during famine. So he's in a hard time, but it's interesting because of in the midst of this turmoil and anxiety, what he does is he writes a song of praise. So you see this in verse 3, you know, sing to him a new song. So a new song, it can be literally a brand new song because the beauty is we serve and love an infinite God. And so even in eternity, we're always going to have fresh ways to praise him. That'll be awesome. But also what a new song can be is taking the familiar and old things that we know about God and appreciating them in new ways. And I experienced this a little bit in a different realm a week or so ago because I watched that movie Fatherhood that came out, you know, where Kevin Hart is the main actor. And so the movie, it's about, you know, it's based on a true story as far as I know, and it's about this father who, it's, it's tragic, his wife dies a day after they give birth to their little girl. And then so the movie follows this man as he raises this girl as a single dad, and it, it's a real tearjerker, but what it did is it made me appreciate Kelsey and Titus in new ways, as I realized, like, the preciousness that, that Kelsey's still with me, that about, you know, the son I have, and so, it's like, so much so that the next time Kelsey and Titus, Titus walked in the door, I just started crying. I was like, it's just so good to see you guys, and Kelsey's like, boy, what's wrong with you? I was like, I gotta watch Fatherhood, and, you know, maybe you'll get it, but this, this is what Psalm 33 is going to do for us this evening. It's going to, you know, especially for those of us who are just kind of ho-hum going about our life, and God has lost its luster and his excitement. Uh, he's going to help us appreciate maybe even old things we've known about him, but in new ways so that we can be confident and joy-filled uh, no matter what we're going through because he's a glorious God. And so uh, the main thing we'll see through this psalm is just, it's very simple, and that's the seeing the greatness of God gives us confidence for today. Uh, seeing the greatness of God gives us confidence for today. And we'll see this in like three concentric circles the psalmist takes us in. So first we'll see the greatness of God in creation. Uh, next, we'll see the greatness of God in history. And then number th- three, we'll see the greatness of God in your life, in your personal life. So the greatness of God in creation, the greatness of God in human history, and then the greatness of God working in your personal life. Okay, so first number one, uh, the greatness of God in creation. So uh, let's start in verse four. The word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So the psalmist here is highlighting the character of God. He's upright, he's faithful, he's righteous, he's justice, he's filled with steadfast love. And the idea here is creation is infused with the character and nature of this God. And we hear that and we go, okay, yeah, whatever. But when you think about the context that the song, song would have been sung in, so uh, the Israelites would have sung this psalm when they were in exile in Babylon. And the primary creation story of Babylon was you had these two gods who duked it out, and one god won, I think his name was Marduk, he killed Tiamat, and he, he took the corpse of the god that he slayed, took her corpse and made half of her as the heavens, the other half became the earth, and that's how the earth was formed. So through violence and purposelessness, so no artistry, no design, like that was at the heart of the reality for the Babylonians. And we think about the story that we live in today, you know, so what does our secular faith narrative say? Pretty much the same thing, that the world came about through matter exploding, we came about here by chance, so at the heart of our reality is the same as the Babylonian reality, violence and purpose, purposelessness, right? So no artistry, no design. On the contrary, what does Psalm 33 say? 
Psalm 33 says the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So the things of the world don't just point to themselves, but they point to our God. And here's why this is amazing. So I've, I've been reading this really good book called The God of All Things by Andrew Wilson. So some of the things I'm saying here, I'm taking from him. But um, when we begin to see the thing, just the ordinary things in creation as pointing to our Lord, our life begins to get a lot more exciting and is filled with a lot more color and wonder. So think about a mountain. Is a mountain just a mountain? Or does a mountain speak of these steadfast promises of God? Not just because of the immovability of a mountain, like the promises of God, or the grandeur of a mountain, like the grandeur of God's promises, but also, you know, every single major covenant God makes to us as people is associated with a mountain. So his covenant with Adam and Eve, yes, they were on a mountain, Exodus, or Ezekiel 28, look it up, okay? <laughs> the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, all of these covenants where God makes a, pr- a promise, I will be your God, you will be my people, were associated with a mountain. And then when Jesus Christ comes to fulfill the covenants for us, he's always going up and down mountains, up a mountain to pray. He's transfigured on a mountain. He secures the promises of God on a mountain when he's crucified in our place. So is a mountain just a mountain? Or does it shout about the steadfast promises of God? Think about absurd animals. Are absurd animals just absurd animals? Or do they speak about the humor of God? So have you guys seen a Tibetan fox? It has a square face. That's, that's hilarious. Why does it have a square face? I don't know. Why does a sloth take an hour to go to the toilet and back? Why do red pandas and corgis exist? I don't think they contribute anything to the ecosystem. I think, what does it speak of the humor of God, the laughter of God? <laughs> Is a bee just a bee? Or does it communicate the wisdom of God? Did you, I've been having fun researching this week. Did you, know, did you know a bumblebee, when it, or a honeybee, right, when it gets nectar and it goes back to its tribe, the way it dances, it's communicating the speed of the wind. It's communicating the quality of the food that it got. It's even communicating, this blew my mind, the position of the sun relative to the food source. So the other bees would know where to go. So is a bee just a bee, or does it communicate the wisdom of God? And maybe one of my favorites, so think about a garden. When you walk in a garden, when you tend a garden, and I know some of you do, is a garden just a garden, or does it speak of the presence of God? So the first garden that was made, it wasn't just this rinky-dink backyard garden. It was massive. Think the scale of Yosemite, right, filled with Clear rivers, glimmering gold, bright flowers, marriage and life and laughter. And that's where God dwelled with his people in a garden. Then when God had the people of Israel make the temple where he would dwell with them, you know, he actually had them engrave how Eden looked into the walls of the temple. So they engraved trees and gourds and flowers into the walls of the temple. They even made the floor plan of the temple modeled after Eden because it's where God dwells with his people. And then many years later, it was in a garden called Gethsemane, where Jesus Christ reeled in horror as he realized the cost that he would have to pay to secure his presence with you. And he did. And then just a few days later, it was in a garden 
on the first morning of the new world where there was a woman named Mary crying. When she heard a voice behind her asking Mary, why are you crying? And then she heard her name, Mary, on the lips of a risen Savior. And she turned around to see Jesus promise her, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I will be with you always. And at the end of all things, it's going to be a garden city that we live in with streams and trees. And the Lord will be there. It will be so bright. We won't need a sun. But it's going to be a garden city. So is a garden just a garden? Or does it speak of the presence of God? It changes how you view the world. And this isn't just for some, you know, hippy-dippy nonsense. But when you see the greatness of God in creation, how does it give you confidence? Because it's impossible to be filled with wonder and joy and also be filled with self-pity and fear as you walk through the world and you see God in creation. Our God's amazing. And what else do we see here about God in creation? Verse 6, the word of the Lord makes the heavens, the breath of his mouth, all their host. Verse 7, he, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So here the psalmist is communicating the sheer effortlessness through which God creates. He just, he speaks, he breathes, and the earth comes into being. And see verse 7 there, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. So the sea, have you ever been in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in the middle of the night during a storm? I haven't, but I imagine it's one of the most terrifying things that can happen. Just the sheer power and scope of the sea. And yet here God just holds it in his fingers. And the vastness of the sea if you guys have seen the, um, the ocean episode of the BBC production, you know, Planet Earth, uh, David, uh, what's his name? David, not Hasselhoff, Attenborough. <laughs> yeah, sorry, really bad. So the British commentator, David Attenborough, basically the whole, the whole thing is like, what's that? No idea. What's that? No idea. What's that? Like, even with all our technology, there are so many things in the ocean, we have no idea what they are. And here God just holds them effortlessly. And how does that help us have confidence as we see the greatness of God in creation is it puts things in perspective because we see, we're reminded that God is limitless and we are limited. So Jen Wilkin in her book, None Like Him, does a great job talking about this, but consider how much of your anxiety or impatience or anger comes from trying to rival God in the fact that he's limitless instead of celebrating the fact and running in the fact that you are limited. Because you and I, we are limited in how much we can get done in our job. We're limited with how well we can lead people that that are in our, who are in our charge. We're limited in how well we can parent our children. We're limited in how well we can even change ourselves. And where we get so, you know, vexed and frustrated and impatient is when we, we begin to believe that we are limitless like God instead of depending on him in our limits. Or consider how much you you look to other people to be limitless, like God is. So consider how often, like, you know, how much is the sting of betrayal made worse, or your anger towards someone, or even just when someone annoys you, how much of that situation is made worse because there is an assumption deep down that that person should be limitless in their loyalty toward you, and and, in their affection toward you, and their their trustworthiness toward you, in the way that only God can be. We celebrate the fact that we serve a limitless God, and life is found when we embrace our limits. We have confidence and joy as we see the greatness of God. 
Okay, so that's the first thing we see, the greatness of God in creation. Next, number two, the greatness of God in history. So we see this in verse 10, 11, and 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. So verse 12 there, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Who's that? So at the time of writing this, this was Israel. And in our modern day, the nation whose God is the Lord, it's not America. I'm very grateful for America, especially as a pastor. I'm very glad for the religious freedom that we have. But America is not God's special nation. Okay, so the nation whose God is the Lord is the global multi-ethnic body of believers gathering in local churches across the entire world. That is now the nation whose God is the Lord. And so this picture that we see here is the church basically on the margins as these powerful nations are rising and falling and swirling around among them. And what does the psalmist observe? So verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. So the psalmist sees what was true 3,000 years ago, you know, as true as it is today. And that's that you have powerful nations vying for ascendancy, right? So, so today you have the interests of Western nations and the interests of Russia and the interests of China, like all vying sometimes with, often against one another. And what does the psalmist see is the Lord is overseeing and superintending all these things. So nations rise and they fall. So even the most powerful nations end up being frustrated by the Lord, and they disappear. So think about some of the most powerful nations in history. So the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, Roman Empire, Mongol Empire, French Empire, British Empire, Spanish Empire. Very powerful empires. How many of those empires still exist? None of those empires still exist. Does the kingdom of God still exist? You know, the church through which the kingdom of God is expressed is it's, it's the largest, most global, most multicultural, multi-ethnic group of people in the world, and it's only rising. We tend to forget that living in America, where it does seem to be falling. And so what we see here, the point of this is, is even as very powerful nations rise to the top, they fall. But what stays constant throughout the ages? God's people not because we're amazing, we're a mess, but because of God's goodness and mercy. And so as you think about this, the greatness of God superintending everything throughout history, I mean, the most primary example of this was with the Roman Empire, where, because God often uses the powerful nations to accomplish his purposes in his church. So the Egyptian Empire, right? The Israelites grew and multiplied in the Egyptian Empire until finally God liberated them out of Egypt and then said to Egypt, you're done. You know, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Persian Empire, God used them to discipline and teach God's people. And then after he was done with them, Israel learned, you're done. And then with the Roman Empire, right, it was through the, the power of the Roman structures and the religious power structures that they crucified Jesus. And in Acts 2.23, the Apostle Peter in his sermon at Pentecost delivers this beautiful line where he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. But God you raised him from the dead, loosing the pangs of death. In other words, you're responsible for crucifying Jesus. 
but God's superintending history turned the worst thing that happened into the best thing that could happen so that you and I could be redeemed, anyone who trusts in Jesus. And God does this over and over again. That's the most primary example, but he does this all the time. And so as we think about some applications here, the people of God and the word of God being the only thing that really endures, uh, just two things that I hope are encouraging. Uh, One is, in our cultural moment, a, a lot of people, a lot of Christians are panicking, you know, because everything's changing so fast with the political landscape and technology and, you know, how people form identity and all these kinds of things are shifting so fast. And when you're a believer, um, you know, and you hold to the word of Lord, when you hold to the word of the Lord, you know, people, depending on, you know, if they lean conservative, if they, clean, if they lean more liberal, are going to have problems with some of your moral positions based on the word of the Lord. Right, and it can be tempting to capitulate uh, because, you know, in the midst of a powerful nation where popular opinion is so powerful, it can be tempting to just say, okay, yeah, you know, maybe because this was written 2,000 years ago, it doesn't matter anymore. But what we're seeing here is anything, as, as the saying goes, anything that's not eternal is eternally out of date. And so you can have confidence when you hold to the word of the Lord that it will endure and so you have the opportunity. I mean, you should be known in your workplace and in your neighborhood. Just think about in your workplace, are you known as the most patient person, the most hardworking person, the most compassionate person because you're a Christian, the most hospitable person, actually having people in your work over into your home. And then as you do that, you can invite people into the beauty and goodness of the word of the Lord and the Lord of the, the word who we see in Jesus Christ. Yes, you can have confidence as you see the greatness of God. And number two, uh, especially for those of you, I know because we have a lot of people here who work in political spheres, but this applies to anyone. So for those of you who, you know, work in foreign affairs or or public policy or whatever it may be, you are in such a unique position. Because as you see how God superintends history, on the one hand, you don't have to attach your meaning in life and your identity to what happens in your job. And in your work with foreign nations, and your work, 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 in your work with the policies of our nation. But on the other hand, you don't have to take the opposite approach, where you just get angry or withdraw or fall into cynicism, because like, what's the point? You know, I've been working hard for, you know, 10 years, and have I accomplished anything in my job? But what we see here is, like, even the nations that fall. So America, you know, America, we're a baby nation. We might not be around 50 years from now, 300 years from now. I don't know. But the Lord will use every single thing that you do, even if it seems so futile, for his purposes. Like, there is no job too small in what you do. And that should invigorate you in your work life. Okay, while at the same time you're not deifying what you do as well. Because as we behold the greatness of God, we have confidence for today. And finally, number three, we see the greatness of God in your personal life. So now the psalmist zooms in even further. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. So what's he saying here, especially in verse 16, in verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. So a king, especially, it's hard for us to imagine because we don't live in a monarchy, but 
A king with a great army is one of the most stable and secure people, right? Or a warrior, a very, a really strong warrior who's unmatched in strength is a very stable person. And what the psalmist notices is even these people who seem so stable aren't. Because a king, you know, eventually a bigger king with a big army can come along, or the warrior, a bigger warrior with more strength can come along, or even if that doesn't happen, their strength or their army can't protect them from relational betrayal or from illness and death. So they're actually not as secure as they look. And you even think about, you know, people today. So, you know, who might people look at as a very, like, who would I love to be? I don't know, maybe some of you or other people that you know would love to be someone like Jeff Bezos, right? Because he's founded pretty much an empire called Amazon, I don't know, probably 100% of you here, maybe not all, but 99% of you use Amazon, okay? He has more money than he can want, but in all of his security, can that still, I mean, it, and I don't say this flippantly, this is tragic, you know, it couldn't protect him from divorce. Can all the success that he has really at the end of the day show him that his grit and his zeal was enough? Can his empire protect him from a tragic terminal illness diagnosis that he could get at any day. No, he's actually very fragile. And, you know, 50, 100 years from now, he'll be dead along with you and me. Happy Sunday. Okay. <laughs> so, as we see all these people in these groups who look so strong, in, in contrast to this, who does have a stable identity? Who does have a stable future? And we see that, we see that in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. So behold, the eye of the Lord. This isn't God like creepily watching you. This is so when the eye of the Lord is on you, uh, one phrase to to use is to think about if you're quick eyed with somebody, uh, what this means is you love that person so much and are so attuned to their needs and you know them so well that you notice even just through a slight eye movement or twitch of their mouth, you know right away if they're upset they're going through loss, if they're happy, and you move toward either to celebrate with them or to grieve with them. And so what the psalmist is saying, and contrary to people who have great success or great families or great relationships, it's those whose identity is in the Lord and the Lord who attends to all of their needs and cares for them through thick and thin. Those are the people who are secure. As I, was, as I was studying this this week, so notice what he says. Behold the eye of the Lord. So in other words, the people who the Lord loves. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Anybody can fear and worship the Lord. Anybody can hope in the Lord. So imagine if this verse said, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who are strong. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who have unwavering discipline. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who have never failed God or failed those they love. And that would be crushing, would it not? And I was reading an article this week about the, um, you know, the, one of the popular phrases in our culture that, you know, it's, it's important that you need to speak your truth. You know, so Oprah Winfrey at the 2018 Golden Globe, she said, you know, one of the most powerful things that one can do is to speak your truth. And the author was talking about how not only how incoherent 
that mantra is because, you know, if, if you say you need to speak your truth, it doesn't take long till you run up against somebody else who speaks a di- different truth. <laughs> and now it's just the one with more power or the one who can shout the loudest is the one who wins. And it's not only incoherent, it's, it's destructive as well. Because what happens if a husband or wife who has children suddenly decides that their truth is to leave their spouse and their children for a new lover? But this is the, the type of, of culture we're creating with you need to speak your truth. But it's not even incoherent or destructive. Most of all, this author was saying, is it's, it's exhausting and crushing. And a lot of sociologists, even un- unbelieving sociologists, are, are looking at this. And because in a culture of speak your truth, basically what it creates is if you live that, what you're doing is you're in the middle of a self-made project where it's up to you to fulfill the destiny of your life. And the problem is, what happens when you can't? You know, what happens when your truth or your efforts or your intelligence or your industry just isn't enough? And the promise that we have in Psalm, one, in Psalm 33 is, all you have to do is cling with hope to the Lord, even if that hope is riddled with doubts. Anybody can do that. And we have a story of a group of people that this happened to. And it was the disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John, among others. And I love this story, especially in light of Psalm 33. Because, so in Mark chapter 4, the disciples get on a boat, and they're seasoned fishermen, so they're used to storms. And they go out, you know, they push off from the shore in the evening. So I think it's the middle of the night, and they're in the middle of the sea. And a storm comes. So the sea is tossing and turning, and Jesus is asleep. He's a good sleeper. And, you know, so the disciples are filled with fear, and they cry out to Jesus, and Jesus wakes up from his nap, and he says, peace, be still. And in a word, the ocean becomes as smooth as glass. And... (laughs) What happens is, is the text says, after Jesus does this, he looks at the disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? And then it says the disciples were filled with more fear. <laughs> so they were afraid of the storm. And then Jesus calms the storm with a word, and now they're more afraid. And what's going on here, it wasn't just that they witnessed Jesus being a miracle worker, because they had seen him work miracles already. But when he spoke to the sea, and told it to be quiet, what they realized was, we thought we pushed away from the shore with a sleepy rabbi, but as we we just saw him do what he did, this is the God of Psalm 33. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He commanded, and it stood firm. This is God. (laughs) And a couple years later, when they realized all of their lives were weighed and left wanting, as they were all revealed to be cowards, doubters, or deniers, this powerful God did an even more powerful act by reversing the power structures of the world, giving up his life for them and for you on a cross, and then raising from the dead so that they could have hope eternal and glory and gladness with him. And then he commissioned them in the middle of a culture that was extremely hostile to the gospel, and these are people who knew their weakness, 
He said, you will receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses to all the ends of the earth. And so these disciples, including the women who followed Jesus, they knew their weakness. And it was because they knew their weakness combined with a powerful but gentle God that they were able to do what they did and have confidence. And so it is with you. And so I'd like you to just consider just something in your life right now, maybe that's making you restless or anxious or afraid or frustrated or, you know, you name it. And consider how much of that emotion that you're feeling is because you're, you're trying to act like you're limitless and you're trying to have the strength of a warrior or the great army of a king. And instead, instead, hear the promise of this psalm, which is that you are a dependent person, but you are dependent on a limitless and wonderful God. And who you are is you're not alone, but you're pursued, redeemed, loved by the God who made the mountains, the God who made corgis and red pandas and sloths, and who speaks at the ocean, and it's still. And he's working out everything in your life for the advancement of his kingdom and your good. And his eye is absolutely on you, and he's with you. Even on the days where you feel like it's really hard to hold on with hope. As we see this greatness of our God, we can have confidence in him. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you will lift my eyes and lift the eyes of our church to see how wonderful you are. Uh, help us to see you uh, in all of creation in ways that we haven't even seen you before. Uh, remind us, even as we get scared or nervous or frustrated by um, the decisions people are making around us or our nations going, reminding us, Lord, that you are superintending over everything. And most of, our Lord, most of all, Lord, I pray that you will help me and our church to be a people who don't rely on our own strength, uh, but truly allow your greatness to come into our life by being weak and dependent on you. Thank you so much for the hope of the gospel. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.